Well, with that said, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I told you we were going to start over. I'm going to get it right this time. Genesis uh, chapter 1. We actually uh, began our series on the book of Genesis back in November of 2014, and we concluded it three weeks ago, uh, looking at the very last verses of Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Over the length of time that we've been uh, doing uh, this series through Genesis, we have covered every text of this book uh, over the length of 99 sermons, uh, plus six topical messages that were from the book of Genesis. But there is one passage in the book of Genesis that I personally never got to preach to you. And that is Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through uh, 13. Uh, we started our uh, series off uh, the first week of November of 2014, and then the following week I had to go to New York to speak at a men's conference um, in New York, and Carlos Lemtiaco preached that following Sunday that I was gone, and he preached on this particular passage, and he did this because our original plan was for Carlos and Mike and I to team teach through the book of Genesis. So he covered this passage because it's where I had left off the previous week, and then I was supposed to come back and pick up in verse 14 when I returned, which I did. However, when I returned from New York, Mike and Carlos told me that they thought it would be best for me to cover the book of Genesis the rest of the way. And they would just preach on other passages and topics uh, when it was their turn to preach. So that's what I did. And from Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 onward, I preached through Genesis over the last five years. And we finished our exposition of this book three weeks ago. Uh, But on more than one occasion uh, in the last month, when I was expressing satisfaction to the staff over having preached through the book of Genesis, Carlos was careful to remind me that there is one passage in (laughs) Genesis that I never preached through, and he encouraged me to go back and do it. So that is my aim uh, this morning. I don't preach on this passage today because there was anything lacking in Carlos's exposition of this text five years ago. It's on our website. You're welcome to listen to it. I've listened to it twice But I come back to this passage simply so that I can do the same personal study of this passage that I've been able to apply to every other passage in the book of uh, Genesis. Uh, Right now, um, I have about uh, 1,500 pages of sermon manuscripts on the book of Genesis. That stack you see in that photo is every word that I have spoken Uh, on Genesis in the last uh, five years. I'm thinking about taking that and presenting it to Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) To see her try to tear that up. 
I'm just kidding. Um, but Carlos has told me that if I ever do write a commentary on the book of Genesis, he doesn't want there to be a gap in Genesis 1. And I don't want a gap in Genesis 1 either. Uh, so with God's help, I'll be filling in that gap uh, this morning. And the title of my message is Two Days of Spoken Word Artistry. Two Days of Spoken Word Artistry as we observe what God does in this passage on the second and the third days of the creation uh, week. And to set the stage for what happens in our text uh, today, let me read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which goes as follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Hebrew word that is translated created here is bara, a word that conveys complete effortlessness on God's part. It also conveys the, the idea of the creation of something that is altogether novel and without precedent, that hearkens a new era. It's the perfect word to use when describing God as creating something out of absolutely nothing. And this is what God did in the first verse of the Bible. He created the heavens and the earth. However, the heavens and the earth in their original state had some deficiencies, which God will address in the coming days of creation. As for the earth... We're told in verse 2 that the earth was formless and void. Literally, the Hebrew says the earth was tohu wabohu. Tohu speaks of earth as being not yet put into its proper shape. And bohu speaks of the fact that the earth was empty and uninhabitable. We're also told that darkness was over the surface or literally the faces of the deep, indicating a tossing primeval ocean in the dark. At the end of verse 2, we're told that the Spirit of God was moving or hovering or fluttering over the surface or the faces of the waters. The Spirit of God may be hovering over the surface of the waters here to calm them and hold them at bay. Uh, but the Hebrew word used here may very well indicate that the spirit is fluttering over the waters to stir them up in anticipation of what is about to happen over the next few days of creation. In verse three, God speaks and thunders with a mighty voice. Observe what he says in verse three. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. It's perhaps here that God begins spinning the earth on its axis like a potter with a lump of clay on a wheel creating the phenomenon of day and night in relation 
to the light source that God has created. God sees that the light he has created is good. And by having the earth rotate on its axis, God thereby created a separation between the light and the darkness from the vantage point of earth. We're told that God calls the light part of the cycle day and the darkness part of the cycle. God gives it the name night. Naming something, as many of you know, was an act of authority and ownership, which means that God owns the day and he owns the night. Day and night are his intellectual property. When you and I wake up to this phenomenon called day and when the sun sets and we find ourselves in the night, we are finding ourselves in sight of things that belong to God. He created them. He controls them. And God has every right to tell us how to behave ourselves during every one of the days and the nights in which we find ourselves. We're then told in verse 5 that there was evening and there was morning the first day. Dusk came at the end of this first day. And then when dawn broke at the beginning of the second day, the first day was officially over. And it's here where our passage picks up for today. And in this passage, we will observe seven actions of God that he engages in on the second and the third days of creation. The first of these actions is found in verse six. Let's state it this way. He speaks into existence an expanse to separate the upper waters from the lower waters. And to appreciate what happens here at this point of the creation week, uh, imagine the earth completely covered with water. No land can be seen anywhere with then a deep layer of fog over the surface of the waters with no clear space in between the fog and the waters. Then, with that picture in mind, observe what God does in verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And saying, let there be an expanse, God is commanding into existence an atmosphere that will dissipate the fog waters hovering over the primeval ocean and send them higher into the air with space now in between the waters below and the waters above. It's here where God is creating an atmosphere of nitrogen and oxygen that make up like 99% of our atmosphere today. And he's heating this atmosphere so that it now has the capacity to hold the water in vaporized form. And as these vaporized water molecules rise and then cool, the water molecules would condense back into their liquid state, thus forming clouds higher up in the sky. How much water is God here lifting up into the upper regions of our atmosphere the whole world over? 
Well, we don't know the answer to that question at this time, but if our present atmosphere provides any kind of guide, estimates are that our present atmosphere contains 37.5 million billion gallons of water at any given moment, which is the equivalent of 3,100 cubic miles of water. In fact, the image behind me to your right, is that correct? Okay. Um, is a satellite image showing the distribution of water vapor over the earth. Water vapor, uh, water is not visible in vaporized form, but this is what our planet would look like from space if water vapor was actually visible. And perhaps the concentration of water vapor in the atmosphere was even higher at this particular point prior to the flood. We don't know that for sure, but this gives you at least some idea. Another way of saying what God is doing here on this second day of creation is found in verse 7. Verse 7, we read that God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. So there is now waters below, that's the primeval ocean, and waters above with now a sky or expanse in between. And how did God create this separation? Well, according to verse 6, he delivered a command. And his command was obeyed. A sky came into existence an atmosphere came into existence that caused the separation between the upper and lower waters that God wanted. This is amazing creative power from God for God to do this with simply a spoken command. But this is the God of the Bible, is it not? God is not simply a truthful God in the sense that he speaks words that are consistent with reality God speaks words that are so powerful that they create reality. He speaks and reality obeys and takes shape according to whatever it is that he says. So imagine what this God can do for you. Imagine what a spoken word can do in your life. Imagine how powerful this book is of his spoken words can be in your life. If God can separate the waters below from the waters above with his spoken word, then imagine how he can separate you from your sin through his word. If he can make the world livable through his spoken word, imagine how he can make your life livable through his word. If you will receive his word and believe it and allow it to work freely in your life. By the way, some of you may be wondering, I bet some of you are wondering this, um, how there can be clouds in the sky during the week of creation when, in fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, is commonly understood to tell us that there was no rain 
on the earth prior to the flood. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, the text says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there are some who take the last clause of this verse as a statement describing conditions prior to the flood of Noah's time. That said, I would agree with a number of commentators who suggest that we should take this statement as only describing the earth prior to day three of creation, which totally fits. Then I would agree with those who would suggest that we translate the Hebrew of verse six in this way. So he, God, caused a rain cloud to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, which is essentially what God probably did on the third day, uh, the second and the third day of creation when he commanded uh, the sky to come into existence here on day two. And then we'll see on day three when he commanded the earth to bring forth vegetation. And if you want to know more about how we arrived at this understanding, send me an email and I'll send you the, the notes that I have from when we covered Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. We actually get a little help on this from Psalm 148, where the psalmist seems to speak of our present state of having clouds as being what God actually created on this particular day of creation. In Psalm 148, listen to this. The psalmist speaks to the clouds and says, Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens, or at the top of the sky, basically, is what he's saying. So listen to what the psalmist says. Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded And they, these waters above the heavens, were created. And the Hebrew word is bara, that special word for creation. So he says God commanded, they were created, speaking about these waters that are at the top of the heavens or above the heavens or at the top of the sky. And given the psalmist's use of bara, there's every likelihood that the psalmist is speaking of what God is doing here in our passage today on day two of creation, creating the waters that are above the heavens. So evidently, in the mind of this psalmist, when he looks in his day at the clouds that are in the sky, he's looking at a phenomenon that God created on day two of the creation week. Anyway, in summary... In verses 6 and 7 of our text today, God speaks the expanse into existence, which serves to generate a separation between the primeval ocean on the earth from the waters that are now hovering high above the earth in the form of vapor, which are invisible, and clouds. With the whole cycle of evaporation and condensation and precipitation now being established 
all the while maintaining the separation between the waters above and the waters below according to God's desire here. Now, what God, what did God do after accomplishing this feat? This leads us to the second act of God on this day of creation. Number two, he, he does some naming. He calls the expanse heaven before the end of the second day. You could actually, in your notes, just write heavens plural because this Hebrew word is plural. Observe what God does in verse 8. God called the expanse heaven, or literally heavens. Literally, God is calling the expanse shemayim, shemayim, which is the Hebrew word for heavens. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the word shemayim was used to speak of, of three things depending on the context. It could speak of the atmospheric heaven where the clouds are and where the birds fly. Uh, Secondly, the celestial heavens where the sun and the moon and the stars are. Or number three, the spiritual heavens where God inhabits or all three combined. In verse eight, God is using the term shemayim or heavens to speak of the atmospheric heavens that are now surrounding the earth And it just so happens, guys, that today we know that the Earth's atmosphere is composed of several layers, the troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, and the exosphere, each with distinct characteristics. So the plural word that is used here fits beautifully with even our modern understanding of our own atmosphere of earth. But again, God is naming the heavens here, the atmosphere here. And keep in mind that to name something was an act of ownership. You don't name something that doesn't belong to you. None of you would be happy with me if I uh, asserted myself and gave names to your children. They're not mine to name. They're yours to name. They belong to you. But for God to name the expanse means that he owns the expanse. He owns the atmosphere. He owns the heavens. It's his intellectual property. It's his to do with as he pleases. And throughout history, God will control the heavens and the heavens will always do his bidding. All the time. It is He, God, who commanded the heavens to drop rain upon the earth during the great flood that comes later in Genesis. It is God who will close up the windows of heaven and open the windows of heaven at His pleasure throughout human history. In various places of the Old Testament, God gives weather predictions. Literally, He gives weather predictions through his prophets, and his predictions always came true. God can make these forecasts with 100% accuracy because the heavens are his. They're under his control. If God had a weather channel, that would be the only channel we would be interested in watching because he would always be right. 
The heavens are under his control, and we see the beginnings of that absolute control here. At the end of verse 8, we're told the following, there was evening and there was morning a second day. So the evening of the second day arrives, and the dawn breaks upon the next day, at which point the second day is now history. God has separated the waters below from the waters above, but He's actually not done separating. He now wants to create some separation between the primeval ocean on earth and the land on earth. And this leads us to his third act that we see during this part of the creation week. Number three, let's word it this way. He effectually calls the waters on earth to gather and the dry land to appear. Observe what he does in verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. This command here is simple enough to speak, but it requires a seismic upheaval around the entire earth that, guys, we can't even begin to fathom. It's hard for us to imagine a 10.0 earthquake lasting for 10 or 20 seconds. Imagine a 100.0 earthquake all over the planet causing land masses to be forced upwards several thousand feet until they form mountains and for other land masses to collapse into valleys for the water to go there. The sound of such movements of earth had to be the equivalent of the sound of a million trains. And then the movement of the waters rushing toward the lower land masses had to have created a shattering roar, the likes of which we can't even possibly begin to imagine. And a fierce wind also had to be blowing to dry the land as it appears none of us would have wanted to be around to see this live. But all of this stuff that's going on on this day, uh, none of what I just said is actually described in the passage. All we get is one of the biggest understatements in all of Scripture at the end of verse 9, where the text says, and it was so. God says, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And all we're told is it happened. However, we're not totally left completely to our own imaginations as to how this all happened. In Psalm 104, the psalmist speaks admiringly to God and he says to God in verse 6 of Psalm 104 and following, he says, You covered the earth with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. And this is the way things were at the end of day two of creation. Verse 7, At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they, the waters, may not pass over so that they will not return 
to cover the earth. Imagine the power of God being displayed here the world over. He speaks a command and mountains rise in obedience to his command. Other land masses collapse in deference to his command in order to make themselves a repository for the waters of the earth. The result is that the waters gather into one place, the text says, and now there is dry land that has appeared. All in all, God has now created the third and the final separation of the creation week. He separated the light from the darkness on day one. He separated the lower waters from the upper waters on day two of creation. And now here, God has separated the lower waters from the land on day three. Having accomplished this third separation through his commanding word, God now gives names to what he has created. And this leads us to the fourth act of God during this part of the creation week. Number four, he calls the dry land earth and the gathered waters seas. Observe what God does in verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. Again, for God to name the dry land and the waters, earth and seas is an act of ownership and authority. The land is his and the water is his and he gives these entities the names that he wants to give them. They are his creation. In ancient times, the seas were viewed as a place of chaos and disorder, a place that even the gods could not control. Yet our passage today shows us that God's gathering and appointment of the waters show that they too are under his dominion. The seas are not independent forces to be feared and worshipped, but creations that respond to the direct commands of God. We actually see in the gospel accounts Jesus exercising this authority over the waters of the Sea of Galilee when he commands the waves of the Sea of Galilee to be still. His mastery over the seas shows that he is the same God who created all that is during the creation week. This is why that after Jesus commanded the waves of the Sea of Galilee to be still, that the disciples who were a minute earlier afraid of the waves, now they're more afraid of Jesus than they were afraid of the dangerous waves. They're freaking out because Jesus just spoke to the waves like they're his waves, like he owned them. And they're freaking out because they're realizing in this moment that the Jesus standing before them is the God of Genesis 1, who created and named the land and the seas. Well, coming back to our text here 
in Genesis 1, you'll be interested to know that this is the last time that God names anything during the creation week. There will be animals that are named on day six and a woman named on day six, but it is Adam who will be doing that naming. But observe what God does next, and this brings us to the fifth act of God during this part of the creation week. Number five, he, God, sees that what he has wrought is good. Any artist who does good work likes to pause in the middle of their work and examine and assess their handiwork before moving on to the next step in the process. This is what God does here. We're told in verse 10, the following, and God saw. So he stops and looks and saw that it was good. God looks at what he has done. He looks at how the waters and the land have done his bidding. He sees how the water has gone to its place and the dry land has appeared. And he says, this is good. Keep in mind that the waters do not yet hold any life and the earth has yet to produce any vegetation. Yet God looks upon a lifeless ocean and a lifeless earth and he deems them to be very good. They're not yet what they will be, yet God is pleased to see them where they're at at this particular point. God does not deem something good only when it is 100% finished. He looks at something that is still on its way to what it will be, and he sees beauty in it. The land and the sea are exactly what God wants him to be at this point of day three of creation, and he's pleased with what he sees. Now that the dry land has appeared, God directs his attention to this dry land and delivers an astounding command that brings, for the very first time, living things to the planet. This leads us to the sixth act of God, which he performs during this part of the creation week. Number six, he effectually calls upon the land to bring forth plant life. Observe what God does in verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. This is actually the first time during the creation week when God commands something that he has created to produce something else. Up to this point, he's created things directly, but now he delivers a command to something he's already created and tells it to produce something else. He speaks to the land and says, let the earth, let the land sprout. And how does the land respond? After all, the land's never done anything like this before. Verse 11 ends with the words, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, it says in verse 12. Plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. When you see the word vegetation, think of grass or ground covering vegetation. When you see the word plants, think of leafy shrubs and bushes 
And when you think of trees bearing fruit, this will astound you, think of fruit trees of various kinds. And all such things that are coming into existence have seed within them, which are designed to produce after their kind. And notice that phrase, after their kind, a phrase that shows up, I think, 10 times in Genesis 1. This expression shows us that each type of organism that is now coming forth from the earth has its own structure of DNA that can only specify the reproduction of the same kind. This means, guys, that God's simple command for the earth to produce contained massive volumes of information that are now being downloaded instantly into the DNA of every living thing produced, differentiated among the various species. None of us can even begin to imagine the level of creative genius of of God that he possesses to be able to speak a simple command here that is so loaded with so much information that it immediately gets downloaded and coded into everything that the earth is now sprouting forth with, with each bearing seed so that they can reproduce each after their own kind in obedience to God's command. I was reading some time ago that the computer that was used on the Apollo mission to get man to the moon uh, was one of the most sophisticated computers of the day. Uh, But the article I was reading said that this iPhone 8 uh, has the capacity to run 120 million missions to the moon simultaneously. That's astounding. I think the earliest flash drives uh, could hold eight megabytes of data. And I just saw one this morning that uh, can hold one terabyte of data. And just think about that and then think about God just speaks a sentence. He speaks a command. And how much data is in that command to immediately get downloaded into all of these living things with different coatings for everything produced, all of the various kinds with seed in them to then be able to reproduce after their kind. What an amazing God we have. We're also left here with a valuable lesson about the earth and what it does and what it produces. One of the lessons here is that nature is not a God to be worshiped, but a servant of the God who is worthy of our adoration and worship. The Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna says, the productive forces of nature exist only by the will of the one sovereign creator and are not independent spiritual entities. Another writer says, there is no hint in this passage of the pagan notion of Mother Earth. The land by itself does not produce vegetation. Rather, God enables the land to do so by his creative 
word. So God is the one who gets the glory for this. Well, how does God respond upon seeing the earth now producing grass and shrubs and trees in obedience to his command? This brings us to the final act of God in our passage today. Number seven, he sees that what he has wrought on the third day is good. Observe what he does in verse 12. It says, and God saw that it was good. In particular, God is seeing how the earth is producing all these various forms of plant life in obedience to his command, and he deems it all good, which shows that God is delighting in what the earth is producing. He's delighting in a planet that now features all of these various life forms. Yet God's work of creation is far from finished, right? The ocean has no marine life in it yet. The land has no animal life on it yet. There is no garden of Eden yet, nor is there a man and a woman in that garden yet. Yet God is pleased with where the earth is at this point of the creation week. If it were the end of the sixth day of creation, and this is how the earth looked, God would not deem it good. But for the third day, he's pleased with what he sees. So he calls it a day. In verse 13, the text reads, there was evening and there was morning a third day. And it is here where we will stop for today. There's a variety of points for us to ponder from our passage today. Let's take a few minutes to ponder a few of them. First of all, we see in our text the power of the words of God. God speaks and what he speaks comes into existence. Let there be light, he says on day one, and light comes to be. Let there be an expanse to separate the waters from the waters and uh, the expanse comes to be. Let the waters gather to one place. Let the dry land appear and the land and the sea obey instantly. He says on day three, let the earth bring forth vegetation and the earth immediately obeys and brings forth fruit and obedience to his command. Evidently, when God gives a command, his commands are loaded with power to do what it is that he has commanded if he says, let there be, dot, 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 then whatever he wishes to exist comes into existence. If he commands a lifeless earth to do something that it has never done before, like produce life forms, the earth can do that because God commanded it. That's the power of God. That's the power of his commands. Seeing the power of God, of his commanding words should impact the way we view his commands in our lives, especially if we are believers in Jesus Christ. As Christians who believe in Jesus and have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we should cherish the commands of God, not just because those commands are good, not just because God who gives those commands is good, but also because his commands have power. If Jesus commands Peter to walk on the water and come to him, 
then his command means that Peter can do exactly that, right? If God commands you as a Christian to be holy, that command in itself is a life-giving command that has power within it. And you can be sure that God will give you the grace that you need to be holy as he commands you to be. If he commands you to bring forth fruit in your life, then you can know that his command is an empowering command, enabling you to bear fruit for him. So guys, we should not groan at the sound of God's commands to us. We should leap for joy at his commands to us as Christians because his commands tell us what we're now empowered to do. Of course, seeing creation's instant obedience to the commands of God through the length of the creation week sets us up to appreciate the awful tragedy of the first time that a command of God gets disobeyed. God's going to tell Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve will disobey and act contrary to the command of God. This is a huge deal that will leave all of creation aghast and groaning from that moment forward. Mountains, great mountains rise at God's command. Think about the sun and the stars come into existence at his command and shine their light upon the earth and course through the heavens at his command. They do his bidding at every turn. And Adam and Eve will dare to defy a command from the living God. Are you kidding me? You and I would dare to defy a command from this God? Are we serious? When we disobey what God tells us to do, we're asserting an arrogance that even our sun, which is over a million kilometers in diameter, would not dare to do. Disobedience to the commands of God is an appalling thing. And it's not okay. And we should grieve and repent of our disobedience to this God. On another front, we're reminded in our passage today of something that should help give shape to our beliefs about the miraculous claims of Scripture, which are many. Think about it, guys. If, if you believe that God can effectually command the seas to gather into one place and dry land to appear, if you believe that God can effectually command an expanse to appear and separate the waters below from the waters above, you should have no trouble believing that God could part the Red Sea. You shouldn't come to that passage in Exodus about God parting the Red Sea going, I don't know, I don't know, could this really happen? You should have no trouble believing that God could part the Jordan River for the children of Israel to go through on dry ground into the land of Canaan. You should have no trouble believing that Jesus could command the wind and the waves to be still on the Sea of Galilee and they instantly obey his word. 
or that Jesus could walk on water or that he could take water at the wedding of Cana and turn it instantly into wine. Guys, once you believe the creation account, you realize that none of these miraculous claims in Scripture, none of them pose any problem for God, and they should pose no problem for you. You cannot read through the creation account and walk away with any other belief than the belief that nothing is impossible with God. And that's something good for us to know every day, right? On another front, there's something preciously endearing about God that we see in our passage today and even through the whole week of creation. Up to this point of the creation account, we've now seen God on three occasions stop and look at what he's done and see that it's good. When in reality, everything that he has seen is not yet fully what he's later going to make it to be. That should be comforting to us who have so far to go before we are presented complete and perfect before Christ. You know, God could do all of the work of creation in an instant if he wanted to. He could do all of his miracles in an instant, but God often prefers to do his miracles in stages. And we see his miracle of creation stretched out over six stages of days during the creation week. I think if we were alongside of him, watching him do that and stopping and seeing what he's done is good and then just calling it a day and waiting for the next day, some of us would have been impatient. Let's get this going. You can do this quicker than six days, Lord. Maybe you are among those who struggle with the thought that God could create all that is in six literal days. You might be comforted to know that St. Augustine struggled with the concept of six literal days of creation too. Augustine simply could not imagine how God could create the world in six days. And get this, here's why he struggled with this. He struggled with this concept because he felt that six days was too long. His thought was, why would an all-powerful God need six whole days to create everything? He preferred instead to believe that God did the work of making all things at once simultaneously. And that the six days of Genesis 1 is simply God condescending to us and trying to communicate to us in a way that we can comprehend. There's no need for us to conclude such a thing. If the narrative of Scripture teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is content to do his work in stages throughout redemption history, from the patriarchal period to the Israelites' time in Egypt for hundreds of years, to the time of the judges, to the reign of kings in Israel, to the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the establishment of the church, to the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, to the eternal state. God likes to work in stages, and he is satisfied with how each stage furthers his plan, just like we see him so satisfied 
with each stage of what he's doing during this creation week. God is a patient God. And thankfully, he's patient with us. He works in us in stages too, right? We don't become perfect and complete overnight. God does his work in us day by day and step by step. And he sees his work as good, even though we're not finished yet. We are not yet standing before Christ in completed glory when he will look upon us and say, it is very good. Yet we're told that he has begun a work in us. And Paul tells us in Philippians 1 that it's a good work that he's doing. And it, it won't just be good in its final product on the day of Christ, but it's good now in God's assessment. And God is rejoicing over his present unfinished work in us. And I just I want to put that before you and encourage you to take pleasure in the thought that God rejoices over you even now as he does his good work in you day by day, even though you are so unfinished as I am. Rejoice in that. And hey, be patient with God's work in other people too. God is not, I think sometimes we wish God would change everyone else just instantly overnight. No, God's doing a work in them. And God is looking at what he's doing and savoring it, saying, this is good, this is good. And day by day, year by year, it's a beautiful work of grace he's doing in their life. And we should be patient with his work of grace in them as well. Lastly, in closing, let's appreciate the fact that the God of creation happens to be the God of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, I love this passage. Paul points us back to creation, and he tells us that God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, which is what God did on day one of creation, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, the God of Genesis 1 is the God who has saved us. Genesis 1 tells us the story of God's creation of the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. The rest of the Bible is essentially the story of what God did over thousands of years to prepare the way for Jesus Christ to come. And then when Jesus did come to earth, he lived the perfectly righteous life that we have failed to live. And he died on the cross, the death that we deserve to die so that we could have atonement for our sins. God then raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his own right hand where Jesus now reigns from on high. And God then sent his Holy Spirit to shine the light of the gospel upon our hearts. Darkness, for those of us who are Christians, darkness once covered our hearts. If anything was tohu wabohu, it was our hearts, right? But the light of the glory of God has shone upon our hearts, which is the first thing God did in us to begin to make us a new creation. And if you have not believed in Jesus Believe in him today. Believe in him as your Lord and 
your Savior. Believe in him as the one who can create you into a whole new creation. Call upon his name and he will save you. The Apostle John speaks about Jesus and says, All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. And he, Jesus, who created a perfect world in six days, desires to make you a new creation. Think about that. And consider the resume of this one who wants to do this work of making you a new creation. What a resume he has here in Genesis 1. Imagine Jesus coming up to you and saying, hey, I would like to make you a new creation. And here's my resume that tells you about one of my past projects. And he hands you Genesis 1. Would you not read that and fully agree that he is perfectly qualified and entitled to be the one who saves you and gives you life and makes you into a whole new creation through this life and then in the life to come. Let us all surrender ourselves to the love of this amazing, creating Savior. Let's let ourselves be soft clay in his hands. Let's allow ourselves to be his handiwork, bearing fruit for him Let's allow him who has begun a good work in us to continue that work and let's cherish his joy over us, over the work that he is doing in us day by day. And let's cherish the fact that he's never going to give up on us. He's going to keep perfecting and performing that work in us until the day of Jesus Christ. And we can be confident of this and look forward to that day when God will look upon us in the day of Jesus Christ and say, it is very good, very good. And we'll look at one another and look at all that God has done and the splendid beings that our brothers and sisters in Christ have become. And we're going to say, look at you. Behold, it is very good. Let's pray together. Lord, what an endearing picture of you we are treated to in through all of your word, but even in our passage today. We see your power. We see your joy over the work that you do. We see your patience. And my heart feels smitten by what I've seen. I don't ever want to disobey you again. I want to fully be in your hands leaping for joy at your commands and bearing fruit as you empower me to do so. I want to live my life cherishing and celebrating and praising you and pointing others to you. What a sweet Savior, Creator, God you are.
I pray that if there's any here this morning, Lord, that have never placed themselves in your hands to become a new creation, that they would do that today. Touch their hearts, Lord. Shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ upon their darkened hearts, that they would see Jesus as they've never seen him before, that they would see you as they've never seen you before, and that their glimpse of you would be so powerful, but that they would view it an intolerable suffering to live one more day apart from you and your love. Draw them with your grace to yourself that they might taste deeply of salvation through Jesus and have their sins forgiven, have your Holy Spirit placed inside of them, and then be placed in your hands so that day by day, month by month, and year by year, you can create them anew. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. We thank you for the privilege of supporting missionaries like Promise and many others. I think of the land, the dry land that you created on day three of creation and some of those lands that surfaced from the primeval ocean are the very lands that one day the gospel would go to. And lost souls would hear of God's love manifested through a Savior who died and was raised for them. And you are just, in this week of creation, just setting the stage for this grand plan of redemption that we all get to participate in through our lives that we lead from day to day, through our giving, through the missionaries that we support. So take what we give in this offering, Lord, and do much with all that is given for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we surrender ourselves to you in his name. And all God's people said, 